All right, uh, welcome everyone to another episode of the Cosmic Matrix podcast. Today, uh, with your host Bernard Gunther and my very special guest from India, Kolkata, Neelish Merrick. And Neelish and I, we have been friends for a few years. And um, we've been talking a lot uh, via Skype and on Facebook about various spiritual philosophies and the times we're in right now, and in particular about uh, Sri Aurobindo's integral yoga and his work with the mother together. And that's a very deep uh, philosophy in itself and a spiritual practice. And it's more of a revelation than even a teaching, as the mother used to say. And uh, Listeners of my podcast know, have followers of Merck, that I've referenced uh, Sri Aurobindo's work in my writings for many years. And I personally got into his work five years ago, uh, first with Satram's book, Sri Aurobindo or the Adventure of Consciousness, and now kind of working myself through the, the life divine and the synthesis of yoga and the letters on yoga. And I, I realized more and more the importance of the core message and teaching of Sri Aurobindo, which, you know, at first I was even like, I have to just share real quick myself. I dismissed Sri Aurobindo because just by his name I was another guru and like what I, I'm done and over with that. But once I started to realize what this man has actually taught, what he has also brought to the world, he is truly the last uh, avatar that has lived on this, on this, on this earth, so to speak. So we want to get all into that in this podcast. First of all, Welcome, Neelish. Great to have you on. Thank right you. On. Thank you. Um, to set the stage, I'd like to um, share a quote by the mother, uh, which kind of ties into the times we're in right now as well. And I believe from the mother's agenda, I'm not exactly what year it was. Maybe you remember that. Um, but it really relates to exactly what, what, what we are facing in this day and age. And she writes, or she said, at that moment, at this moment in time, we are at a decisive, decisive turning point in the history of the earth. Once again, from every side, I'm asked, what is going to happen? Everywhere there's anguish, expectation, fear. What is going to happen? There's only one reply. If only man could consent to be spiritualized. And perhaps it would be enough if some individuals become pure gold, for this would be enough to change the course of events. We are faced with this necessity in a very urgent way. This courage, this heroism, which the divine wants of us, why not use it to fight against one's own difficulties, one's own temper imperfections, one's own obscurities? Why not heroically face the furnace of inner purification so that it does not become necessary to pass once more through one of those terrible, gigantic destructions which plunge an entire civilization into darkness? This is the problem before us. It is for each one to solve it in his own way. How do we solve it, Neil? <laughs> Let's um, maybe just start with, you know, giving like a, for the listeners who are not really aware of Sri Aurobindo's work and the mother's work, maybe a, a, some sort of overview of, of a, his philosophy and teaching, if that's possible, or wherever you want to start. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so basically, as you said rightly, what uh, what is important to understand but not easy to uh, get our head around is the concept of the avatar. And because uh, there have been a lot of uh, fake and false avatars and gurus in the world, this whole this whole uh, subject is very controversial. So uh, uh, the notion about gurus and cults and 
everything uh, is essentially can be seen as a play of cosmic forces. And uh, as your work also uh, covers this, whenever there is a force that wants to do good, uh, there is uh, an equal, an equally, almost equally strong force that opposes it. And that is the nature of the play of forces by which the distillation uh, of civilization and of consciousness happens. It's not a it's not a walk in the park, basically. So uh, what we have seen in the last, uh, over the human civilization, but specifically in the last few hundred years, is that um, the battle between uh, the benevolent and the malevolent forces has become fiercer and fiercer. And this also ties in with the notion of the cosmic cycle of the four yugas which in uh, the, you know, the Eastern, the Indian spiritual tradition uh, is clearly delineated. Uh, the Satya Yuga is the, is the age of truth and the Kali Yuga is the culmination point where the destructive cycle has to fully play itself out before the birth of the next Satya Yuga or the next age of truth. So what the churn uh, that we are currently experiencing is the throes of Kali Yuga and we are probably in its most intense and darkest phase. Mm. And therefore, it is uh, not uh, not unsurprising that at this time there needed to be an emanation or an incarnation of the Supreme Force in whatever way we want to understand the Supreme Force theistically, atheistically. <laughs> but there is a Supreme Force, there is an intelligence uh, that is governing the uh, governing all of creation. And um, from the unmanifest or the formless domain in which that force operates, there needs to be a, a manifestation in the terrestrial existence, which is what we find ourselves in, and which actually coincidentally has been designed for the perfect evolution. Uh, and Sri Aurobindo represents such an avataric descent there have been other avataric descents before, but uh, as we said that the Kali Yuga, the time that we are in, is particularly challenging and perhaps the most challenging in the history of humanity. And therefore the avataric descent needed to be of a power and a scope of a magnitude that could help humanity tie through this. And that is what Sri Aurobindo and the Mother represents. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the kind of, um, you know, the esoteric significance of what they represent and what they are. They are in human form, but they represent a power of a, a completely different order of magnitude. And the, the difference between them and many other teachers is that they manage to take it to its uh, ultimate consummation. In other words, <clears throat> the mission, uh, the descent of the avataric emanation in human form is one part of it and then the human form, the human incarnation working through the entire range of cosmic forces to establish with complete certainty uh, the possibility and the actualization of heaven on earth or, or the divine provenance on earth is what needed to have been done through a certain ascension process and that, that was 
completed uh, to the complete summit by uh, Sri Aurobindo and Mahatma. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because when you look at Sri Aurobindo's life, it's very fascinating just uh, on the nutshell because he actually grew up he was sent as a young boy to England to get his education there, went through this whole English education, right? And then um, didn't go back to India until his like early 20s, I believe, and got very politically engaged. He was a politically activist, maybe even anarchist and nationalist and just trying to help to liberate India from the English occupation. And he was even rising, you know, uh, kind of, you know, um, engaging in, in even violent activism, you may say, or just kind of like more, you know, very forceful activism. But eventually he even got uh, then imprisoned. He spent time in prison, solitary confinement, and that's where he found his yoga, basically, right? So that's kind of his first experience. So it's really fascinating. He came from this very political revolutionary towards Sri Aurobindo, the yogic master, and then finding his own yoga. And it's also fascinating because, like you mentioned, like there's something else he established in on Earth, which most people are not aware of, because in the last 20 or so years, he spent in solitude to do the yoga, right? In, you know, really like basically what you were hinting at, I believe, is bringing down the superman, what he calls the supermental consciousness, this opportunity, which we are also able maybe to tag in through, you know, and his accelerator, you know, the the mother and whatnot. So that's really the what a lot of people I feel don't understand with his yoga. That, like you said, he had. Um, there's a whole. It's not just a teaching. It's not just a practice. There's something he represented and manifested during his time. So is that is that correct? Yes, I mean, uh, so there, even uh, his uh, work can be looked at in two phases. The first is his own ascension journey. Uh, which began uh, after he came back uh, from England. Mm-hmm. Uh, incidentally, in his childhood, his father had designed that he is completely cut off from the Indian spiritual heritage uh, and the uh, richness. So he basically first went and understood the rest of the world, the Western world, and studied the classics and Western philosophy and everything else. Um, and then uh, after he came back to India, having got a ringside view of the rest of the world, the Greek and the Latin, and you know, including the European classics, um, his ascension journey began uh, when he landed in India from Baroda. Uh, he went through his own process. He uh, went through the Nirvana process. It took him three days. Hmm. Um, what is normally understood as the Buddhist Nirvana, the, the you know, the, the, the stature of emptiness and complete freedom from all movements of nature. And uh, then he realized that uh, that is just the beginning and uh, he was not interested in personal liberation, yeah. uh, which is what, uh, you know, the earlier parts or some parts of the Buddhist um, uh, credo uh, is all about. Although uh, there are other parts of Buddhism where there is Mahayana, especially where there is a larger uh, vision beyond the personal salvation. But uh, he then, uh, his his primary objective was to channelize this power into the liberation movement for India from British rule. And as you rightly said, he got extremely involved in that and he was a very fiery, very fiery writer and orator. And therefore his, his words and his speech and his writing and his thought process uh, had a kind of a you know kindling effect on the on the Indian freedom movement, and he was 
clearly not a moderate. He could be called an extremist in that sense <laughs> uh, because he believed moderation was uh, was going to get us nowhere. So he was not a middle path believer, <laughs> if you if we can look at it that way. Um, and then uh, the decisive turning happened when he went to jail, and it was an act by the grace uh, for him to be told what he was here for. And and it's a long, it's a very interesting journey. We're not getting to hear where he heard uh, the voice on why he was here and why it was necessary at this point for him to turn. So from that prison life till 1926, he was on his own ascension journey. And he completed the journey in uh, November 24, 1926, which is called Siddhi Day. Mm -hmm. From then till 1950, which was the year when he transitioned from his physical incarnation, the work was only for the earth. So the personal work was over. And if the personal ascension or personal, the reaching the personal summit was the goal that was already done and dusted. Thereafter, the work was only for the earth, for bringing the power down into the terrestrial domain. So that um, uh, uh, humanity could be could be saved. Uh, but it could not be completely completed in the, in, in the sense of full execution because of the resistance of humanity. Right. And the, and the, uh, you know, the, the mud, the mud rising, and the mud rising up the, you know, the, the opposition of, of, of the other forces. Right. Yeah. I mean, and the opposition of forces can be understood in a way as stemming from the ignorance and the refusal of humanity to rise. Mm -hmm. um, so, that's when the forces have the opportunity. The forces exist. The forces exist in the cosmosphere. All world propensities and tendencies and inclinations exist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so whenever, uh, if you think, if you can think of the four forces of the divine, you know, uh, of truth and uh, light and uh, joy and life, uh, by the very nature of creation, four anti-divine forces you can think of as matter-antimatter in a, in a very crude sense, to use an analogy of, of modern physics. So they get created as propensities immediately, but the propensities cannot act unless the manifestation or the instruments of manifestation provide them the opening. Mm. And the opening is provided by, uh, you know, the three gunas, by ignorance, by tamas, rajas, and and even sattva, for that matter, the, the sattvic ego. And that is the opportunity for the anti-divine forces to have their full play and enjoy themselves <laughs> at exactly. our expense. And we are providing that opportunity almost perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the, I mean, that's what even Shirobindo or the mother said, that this yoga is a battle, you know? So on that note, what is really to get into his um, yoga, the integral yoga, because his yoga is very distinctive from any other yoga or even spiritual practice, which you just uh, hinted at. Because most in the old days, spiritual realization or actualization was basically about escaping the world into some state of nirvana, like personal liberation, right? And, you know, we see the extreme in, in India with the aesthetics, you know, to you know, uh, ignore matter, neglect life, the physical world is bad, like even self-mutilation, the the body. But for Shirobindo and the mother was no about bringing down the supermental consciousness, right? So what is what is so different about uh, Sri Aurobindo's yoga to compare it to all the other yogas out there? 
yeah, so uh, let's start from uh, uh, the philosophical foundation. So uh, I mean, uh, the whole the whole philosophical movement across the world has various streams. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know, Greece. Even before Greece, there are. Uh, Persian origins of uh, philosophy, basically philosophy being understood at the as the science as the, as the science of knowledge, on what what basically which addresses the deeper question existential questions, right? So um, in my own experience, having studied uh, you know various uh, types of philosophy and schools of philosophy, uh, it was only when I came across the origin that I understood that uh, that something could be so complete. And so comprehensive, and so well integrated, and integrated to the point that even uh, a, a mental consciousness, which is where we reside, uh, can fully understand it, provided uh, there is a certain uh, uh, dedication and faith to the process. Um, so, his he has constructed a complete philosophical system. To first enable the mental consciousness to understand things, that's and and that nobody else has done, with the with the with the level of uh, comprehensiveness, precision, logical consistency, and um, truth resonance, you know, uh, than anybody else. Uh, so that's the first thing, but that's just the starting point. From that understanding. Where there is no gap and there is no question unanswered or no issue of human life, both in the individual and in the collective sense, there is nothing unanswered or unaddressed. Let's put it that way. Once that foundation becomes clear in our in our mind or in our uh, mental level of consciousness, one can then begin on a solid foundation. To invoke the active side of consciousness, the the passive side of consciousness can be understood as awareness or knowledge, in the informational sense. The active side of consciousness is power, right? So, mm-hmm. chit, or the chit of Satchitananda, which means consciousness, is actually the short form of chit shakti, which means power, right? So, the active side of consciousness is power, which is it is which means. When we say knowledge is power, which we use in a in a different context, that we have information, therefore we can do things. But in a yogic sense, knowledge is power is a much deeper concept. It means that when I my consciousness is in contact with the supreme, I have a different vantage point of consciousness's power, which helps me to navigate the world and deal with the forces of nature. Mm-hmm. So this cannot happen unless the philosophical foundation is watertight and completely secure, right? Because if there are unanswered questions and unresolved dilemmas in our mental vital complex, uh, then there are gaps, right? The problem with all other spiritual teachings or is that despite rapid progress that they have made and despite the phenomenological validity of what they say. Because they haven't gone right till the end, till the summit, there are there are incomplete portions. There are logical inconsistencies. There are even contradictions. And whenever there are gaps, there is the possibility of you know who to get in. Right. 
Uh, yeah. So we call uh, it in, in just for the listeners, the, the anti-divine, the occult forces, hostile forces. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, so in Kali Yuga, when as we said, the the uh, you know the the fierceness of the battle is so intense, uh, gaps are not permissible uh, because gaps, uh, even the slightest gap. And that's the reason why we see that, you know, spiritual cults and the abuse and all of that stuff that has happened throughout the world, despite very good intentions and despite very noble visions that many of these cults have begun with, because there have these, these gaps have been left because of the nature of the density of consciousness and, mm-hmm. and to take the easy way out and the attack of the ego and, the, and various other factors these gaps have remained and therefore the forces have entered and they have destroyed uh, even the good foundations that have been built. So the first thing to understand is that a self-sufficient, complete, comprehensive system sourced from the highest wisdom, which is therefore complete and therefore it is complete truth. There is no room for falsehood. That is the first necessity. So this is from a philosophical standpoint. But Sri Aurobindo's contribution is way, way more than that. On that philosophical foundation, which is what most of his writings in the Arya have been in the in the in the before 1920, in the 10 years between 1910 and 1920, that's the work he had done for the rest of the humanity to read and understand, and it's all available to us, you know, free in written in English language, right? So, so that's <laughs> also had it so good. Actually, on that note, too, because of his upbringing we just shared before, like all of his writings are his original writings in English, right? So the transmission exactly. is not—it's not translated from in. Uh, there is, yeah, there is no loss in translation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So people who understand English, which is probably you know a lot of people, most of the people, uh, his English is difficult, but uh, it is uh, as I said, with uh, what he what he requires is an open mind and a submission and a certain faith. Um, uh, which is what sometimes a westernized scientific materialist uh, uh, paradigm uh, makes it a bit difficult because the skepticism comes in yeah. before faith. Yeah. And in this yoga, it is important to note that faith produces experience, whereas the notion of the materialist scientific science is that experience produces faith mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or experience produces belief or whatever, right? right? That unless I have the experience, I will not believe. But here is the other way around here. That's, that's why, you know, we talk of surrender and all that stuff. We'll get into that later. Right. Uh, so this faith is necessary and it is very difficult for, uh, and I have faced this myself having, you know, grown up in a, uh, my background is science and technology. And, uh, you know, uh, for most of my life I've been, westernized in my outlook and uh, I can see that that has its role to play and there's a certain discipline of mental rigor and discipline and you know uh, bullshit detection that is absolutely necessary mm-hmm. uh, but that's not sufficient because that can create a barrier to the light getting in when one has to move from the mental to the intuitive level of consciousness right. and that's a very very big barrier for the westernized materialized, uh, material scientific mind. And I've seen it in some very, very, very advanced thinkers who are friends of mine and yours who face this challenge, who are stuck there because they are not able to let that mental, intellectual, skeptical guard down. 
and yeah. until they can do that the light is not going to yeah so what they consider a spiritual experience is actually a higher mental experience yeah. on that i can also relate this in my own way my own intellect in its own way or the mind just quite oh, the extreme skepticism the questioning right and the reluctance of the surrender and and accessing almost a higher intellect so to speak right but it also reminds me of in the gens yeah talking about some other maybe inferior <laughs> teachings but that uh, served me myself in my life gurdjieff for example who was not a realized being but there's a lot of you know uh, great tools and and truth in his teaching that helped me along my path but he also in his you know from coming from esoteric christianity sufism and the mystery schools talked about you know the three types of man you know a physical man man one emotional man man two and and in, in the intellect me, mental man man three and he said man three has maybe knows a lot intellectually but has the hardest time in the work because the intellect is in the way and i remember shri abindo also talking writing about it I remembered like just in, in Sarpram's book when he shared about when Sri Aurobindo came face to face with his own mental barrier, the mental fortress, realizing it's just going in circles and the intellect just becomes addicted to intellectual knowledge, but it's not letting in the experience, right? That's And that also ties into what I'm, I mean, I think you're alluding to that we are right now, even Sri Aurobindo talked about in the age of mental man, right? So it has its face, so to speak, or part of an age. Not only is it, it is actually indispensable. Uh, full intellectual development is indispensable. As we are, you know, we talk about cosmic forces, you are, you actually have to go through something which actually becomes your enemy later. <laughs> uh, now the new age spirit, the new age spiritual uh, movement have dropped the mind. And many of our Advaita traditions from India are responsible for that. Mm -hmm. Drop the mind, let the mind go. That is a complete error because, yeah. uh, If you drop the mind, you remain submental and you remain vital. And basically, you remain at a level which is instinctive. But instinct is not the same as intuition. Mm -hmm. uh, intuition is instinct plus a fully developed intellect. Otherwise, the intuition cannot develop. It does not have the, the bulwark or the foundation to form a complete or a direct pathway to the truth. Uh, so, uh, so if you can look at the history of religion... Uh, ancient religion was largely instinctive. It was submental or vitalistic religion. Mm -hmm. That didn't get anywhere. That got us into deep trouble in many ways. Yeah. And then, so nature follows this cycle because nature is ultimately behind nature is the occult intelligence of spirit. So nature, despite her crude and very violent ways, follows this slow unfolding and journey of evolutionary progression from one stage of consciousness to another. So the mental level of consciousness is absolutely indispensable. Anybody who thinks that we can drop the mind is committing a grievous error. But at the same time, after the mind is fully developed, it has to give way. Yeah. And there is no way out. It is very difficult and it can be a block, but there is no way around it. It has to develop fully so that I have my full bullshit detection mechanism in place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but on that, right. on that... Uh, the faith has to open to a, to a mm -hmm. higher domain, leveraging the full power of the intellect to guide us into intuitive consciousness. And that is why in the, in the you, know, you know, as you would know, he talks about the higher mind, the illumined mind, mm -hmm. the intuitive mind, and then the open mind. Each stage is absolutely important and none of them can be bypassed. None of them can be jettisoned. Mm -hmm. There is a clear 
scientific process of spiritual evolution but this scientific is not the science we understand right. it is it is a larger and a bigger science now th thank you for putting that out because it's true like in the new age pop spirituality you say just you know get love your mind just think with your heart and you know just trust your feeling you know and just a vital almost drive just unexamined and just let we know the issue of lack of critical thinking in this day and age even the basics so we need to definitely absolutely develop the mind but not get stuck in it, it reminds me also maybe not to get into in but you know same idea from oversimplification of eastern spiritual teaching of just destroy your ego let go of your ego and then people like uh, you know especially in the western world we have you know, Building, dealing with trauma, wounds and whatnot and fall into more self-diminishment and cannot stand up for themselves because the ego is bad, everything is selfish. And even I remember Sri Aurobindo talked about that now before being able to engage in the great work, so to speak, we need to have developed that, which we then get rid of later. <laughs> that paradox, right? That individual, no, that individual is, that self. Is, well, yeah. well uh, this, uh, it's a very important point to mention because... Um, Uh, probably when we have the opportunity to get in deeper into his philosophy. Uh, but I, it's worth mentioning in passing here that the three aspects of uh, the terrestrial manifestation, especially the evolutionary journey that we have to go through, requires the simultaneous understanding of three aspects, uh, the individual, the universal, and the transcendent. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Each has its significance, but without getting into the detail, basically the individual is absolutely necessary. Without a full individual organization of the being, the spiritual evolution is not possible. And the first step to the individualization of the being is actually a healthy and mature ego. Because the ego represents the center of identity and the fulcrum of action. To get rid of it is an equal folly as getting rid of the mind. I mean, that's a disaster. Yeah. And to, if you prematurely get rid of the ego, you're actually opening yourself to the hostile forces because if there is nothing there, <laughs> then guess who will occupy it? So, uh, uh, but again, what has to be understood is that the healthy development of the ego is a necessary but not a sufficient condition. It's the same thing as we talked about in the mind. Uh, the, the only thing that happens is that the ego as the center of identity moves from the outer surface self organized around the mind, life energy, body complex to what is called the psychic entity, which is the, which is the soul. And that journey is an inward journey, which Sri Aurobindo's yoga clearly outlines, describes and enables. And that has to be, and without that journey inwards, which means transformation of the outer egoic self as the center of identity or the fulcrum of action to the psychic being or the soul until that happens the spiritual descent cannot take place mm -hmm. by by spiritual descent i mean the spirit the descent of the force right to spiritualize the being as you mentioned the spiritualization uh, so here again uh, it is very important to understand what spirituality means most There are too many definitions and too many meanings. Some people even think spirituality means means to feel good or feel kind or feel moral or ethical. That's not the case at all. Right? So uh, the, the whole notion of what spirituality means is itself a huge welter of confusion that adds to the problem. Yeah, yeah. to all the confusions. Uh, throughout the ages anyway and the distortions. So we, so we touched upon like because also... We're, 
to really understand the some of, one of the basis of, of Sri Aurobindo's work and vision is also that he always stated that man is a transitional being, right? So that's the core philosophy that we haven't finished um, evolution on all levels. We're not final. We're in a transitionary state. And we seem to, for, quote unquote, forget that because we assume that, oh, we are God's perfect creation or this is the, you know, we are the evolutionary peak of everything else, but we are actually haven't finished our whole uh, evolution. When, you know, in fact, when you com would compare it to animals and whatnot and, and species, they have in themselves completed their evolution. They are more holistic in a sense than we are, right? Uh, but we are in a transitional state. So, what what does Sri Aurobindo mean that that man is a, that we are not final? That we are in a transitional state and a transitional being. Uh, so, uh, if you compare this with the Western philosophical or the scientific materialist paradigm, the objective function of, of life is to optimize our own well-being, right? And to, when we say optimize our whole well-being, is to be happy, live well, be prosperous. And if you can, please care for others and have an ordered society and a uh, mature political, social system, a decent education, etc., etc. This is what we understand is a good life, right? Now, this is a mental conception of life where the underlying assumption is the perfect man is our instinct. Mm. Uh, Sri Aurobindo turns that on his head. He says the perfect man is just an intermediary state uh, of a much longer transformation journey. On one side of the transformation journey is the animal nature and the other side of the transformation journey is the divine nature. Uh, now, we don't exactly understand. We have an idea of what animal nature means because we observe animals and we can also feel our own animal instincts and our primal and our atavistic movements in us as least if you're slightly self-aware and conscious. But we don't know what divine nature means because it's just a word and, and, and we, we have no idea. We, that's, as I said, we, we, you know, we think it's to be a good person, a kind person, a moral person, an ethical person, a compassionate person. These are not entirely false, but they're very poor and weak approximations of what divine nature means. So divine nature basically means the full power and the consciousness and the operating uh, method of the Supreme. Nothing less than that. So as you can see, it's a pretty modest goal. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so, so when we begin to understand that okay. so it's in the, in the second last chapter of the life divine he actually defines what is a gnostic being right we, we can have a sneak preview of that chapter um, and the gnostic being is essentially humanity who has achieved who has basically completed the journey from animal nature to divine nature and why does one need to do that so that we have the divine life and that's the last chapter of the life divine uh, which basically means that after ha after an individual has completed his journey to being a divine being of divine nature, which means a full full transformation of the animal nature through the current human nature, which is an intermediary state, into a divine nature, we basically have heaven on earth. And that's the promise of the life divine, that 
heaven does not need to be anywhere else in some other realm in some other domain in some other some vaguely understood territory or in some parallel universe or some stuff its possibility is inherent and is destined and is now assured right here right here right where we are mm-hmm. and that's the job and that's the job that shorbindo has made possible for us mm-hmm. yeah so that's also the core what we call philosophy or, or the, uh, the the in terms of the life divine that it's about spiritualizing like the mother said ourselves to bring down the supramental the divine to transform the body the earth matter to spiritualize it instead uh, of reaching yeah, to mean, somewhere that, else that is true uh, basically uh, one thing he does is he he he, he reconciles and unifies the the spirit matter dichotomy which is Mm-hmm. We write from the Greek philosophical days this whole dualistic metaphysics of spirit being one thing and matter being another, or the noumenal being something and the phenomenal being something. I mean, Plato and you know, in the modern, in the recent times, Immanuel Kant being the most uh, uh, influential, if you if you can call it that, uh, philosopher, basically created this dualistic metaphysics where. There was no bridge between the two, and therefore it left us in a quandary. Shorobindo mm-hmm. uh, not only resolves and unifies this framework through a, a certain, a certain ontology, a certain uh, redefined metaphysics, which is the first philosophical foundation. Uh, he then builds on that. So, if if we can quickly go through his, you know, you know, uh, we talk about those six things in philosophy. So there is a mm-hmm. fully unified, consistent metaphysics. and a cosmology of the structure of the universe and an occult hierarchy of planes of seven planes this has to be understood first otherwise we cannot even start mm-hmm. from there we have to understand the nature of the self who are we what is what is the constitution of who are we skin mind body what we have no clue right normally or we have a or even from western philosophy we this whole ego notion and all that good stuff but it, this has to be understood in the backdrop of the cosmology and the structure of the universe the cosmology number one being, meaning what is reality what right. is reality yes. exactly. what, what is reality so cosmology basically means the structure of the universe and metaphysics is what is reality yeah, basically they are related yeah and cosmogony is the creation of the universe in savitri he goes into cosmogony as well but uh, so what is what is right what is is the answer that is metaphysics or ontology from there who are we who am i right that is that is the philosophy of self identity so that's the next step uh the third thing is how do we know <laughs> which in western philosophy is called epistemology so she always knows epistemology is the most comprehensive and the most uh, i mean it basically spans the entire domain across uh, four four domains of knowledge right all of this is in his work in the life of divine and various other places Uh, so, um, so uh, what is reality? Who are we, and how do we know? And how do we employ those means of knowledge? And knowledge here is not just informational knowledge, as we yeah. normally understand it. This knowledge is knowledge of consciousness contact with the supreme, right? So that is what is called self knowledge with a capital S. <clears throat> uh, and then we get to ethics. What is the right thing to do? What What are we here for? Which is what this transitional being thing and you know what is our job what is our role um do we even understand why we are here or are we just uh, you know 
sitting around like uh, like a piece of paper tossed around in the wind that's the question and so that is ethics and then comes politics how do we work together we are not an island we are not alone we are together with each other right how do we work together mm-hmm. for harmony and peace we haven't figured it out after several centuries or millennia right we still haven't figured it out uh so that is the fifth thing and then finally there is the refinement the, the journey to the the good the, the true and the beautiful primarily premised around beauty which is what is conventionally known as aesthetics so this is the full um uh you know the the constitution of the philosophy on which one has to then premise the spiritual ascension journey mm-hmm. thanks thanks so um, the last point, beauty, also is I think important to mention that it's not what we understand under beauty from like the vital matrix perspective, right? <laughs> so this is more just like beauty of like can can we can we just describe that real quick from the uh, see uh, uh, so one is human beauty, the vital you know the the whole sexual side that is a big subject in itself. Yeah, yeah. very very important subject. If you don't have time today, maybe after some time, but. If you just look at beauty in terms of something which is pleasing, something which is aesthetically uplifting and which which helps us refine and subtleize uh, our sensibilities and our sensitivity, so that's the whole domain of art. And there's a philosophy of art itself: yeah. art for art's sake, art as a representation of reality as it is. Or art as the representation of reality as it can be and should be, and there is a lot of a lot of there's a whole philosophy of aesthetics itself. But uh, primarily, what we understand aesthetics is a tool for gratification, mm-hmm. some kind of gratification. Now it can be a gross gratification or a finer gratification, and there is a there is a stratum there, there's a spectrum there, but. Uh, but uh, it is gratification of the self as understood by the skin encapsulated ego right. shorobindo redefines this as a movement towards divine self expression mm-hmm. so it basically it is a process or a mechanism or a technology if you will related to soul identity or self identity once we understand who we are how do we bring about that refinement from gross animal nature towards divine nature how does the pursuit of the beautiful and the true and the good uh enable us not to gratify ourselves but but make a spontaneous expression of who we are uh, with an ascension journey towards divine qualities that is the real meaning of aesthetics mm-hmm. okay No, thank you. So these six aspects you mentioned, from what is reality to cosmology, who am I, how do I know ethics, and so on. I mean, these all happen. Metaphysics, the- metaphysics. So let me let's summarize okay, it. Summarize. Yeah. Let's keep cosmology out for the moment. Metaphysics, self identity, epistemology, ethics, politics, aesthetics. Beautiful. So all of that also work together at the same time, interrelated. Obviously, of, of right? course. Yeah, of just course. to make this sure that you know, and also the yes. way we approach it is like that's a process in itself because to really go deeper, it also depends on our own what I would call level of being or self development to be able to grasp it. You know, these different. So, 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 to understand the philosophy, so as we mm-hmm. mentioned, the mind has to become a very, very a suitable vehicle, fully. with full individualized organization 
free from the tyranny of the masses and the collectivist pollution and all of that stuff. That's very, very important, which is the point you mentioned that the first, the ego has to have an healthy individuation so that it's not caught up by the lowest common denominator of the mass. That's very important. And related to that, when we talked about mental development, reading Aurobindo's philosophy enables that process by itself. Yeah. It puts the mind through difficulty, but a necessary difficulty to, to begin to try to understand him. And just by trying to read him, the structure of the mind changes. Yeah. The neuronal structure, the whole architecture of the mind, by trying to read him and trying to go through the difficulty, however challenging it might mean, I've experienced this myself. Uh, to try to plow through him, even if it is one paragraph a day, and it can be very difficult. But even if it is one paragraph or one page a day, that difficulty, and then when you sleep on it, it works in your subconscious and lots yeah. of things happen. But because his words are infused with the consciousness of this mm-hmm. from the highest source, there is a certain alchemical process that we are not aware of that begins to happen on us. Yeah. From our mental consciousness, oh, we are just reading some words, this philosophy is difficult, it's, oh no, uh, I'm not getting it. That's a suboptimal interpretation. If we keep at it, whether we read his poetry or his prose, there is an alchemical process that begins and that basically raises our mental capacity to the necessary level required before it can begin to ascend to the spiritual domain. This is very, very important to understand. Very important. Whoever wants to explore this path. Yeah, yeah. because I, I thank you for sharing that. I can relate this myself. As I mentioned at the beginning, I've been reading for the past, you know, five years ago. And interesting, first I rejected it. It was like, because I had my own triggers around the name, but different people brought it to me. So, so something really wanted to get me and then started reading it like, oh, shit, basically. <laughs> this is, uh, there's something about it. And I remember like, yeah, Maybe we can touch it upon some some other time. I first read also Satpram's book, Shirobindo, The Adventure of Conscience, which is, you know, a good introduction, but it's written by Satpram. But there's something in the mother coming through. It's a beautiful summary, right? So it has its own way. But once I also started reading his, you know, I'm I'm chewing through the life divine right now. Um, read his original work and I have these little pocketbooks. There's some great pocket quotes here and there, you know, about different uh, topics. Once you read, it's true, like there's something happens within your consciousness or brain. And I'm, 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 you know, some of the work, like the life divine, like you said, literally just read a chapter or a page a day, because it's some, it's really a mental exercise on some level, because some of the sentences are literally like this. So you would call them run on sentences, right? So there's a certain, there's a certain flow to it, right? Then once you get into it, like, Whoa, okay. There's a different level, a different state of consciousness you almost enter once you're in that flow. Do you know what I mean? Uh, there's a very important point about you mentioned large sentences, and there's uh, the large sentences are difficult to navigate, but it is important to do it because it captures the totality of the idea. Mm-hmm. The specific idea that is being presented, it is important to, it is covered in one sentence because once you understand it is one sentence and treat wrestle with the mind to have the integrative capacity to hold the different bits of information in the sentence, yeah. but then integrate them into a totality. That is when the, the mental capacity is stretched. And that is when, you know, it lacks like a blotting paper to be able to soak the wisdom. Yeah. 
There exactly. is a science to this, and, and it's not that he has written these sentences deliberately long. It is, <laughs> it is basically, it is absolutely precise. Yeah. It is bang on target. It's just that we have to get rid of our barriers and our, you know, our impatience and our. Uh, that is a that is a tough challenge because uh, we are used to instant gratification with everything, right? And uh, that that can come in the way. Yeah, that's that's a good point nowadays of pop spirituality and everybody wants to be healed uh, yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. But to what you said, I remember like also when I started reading it four or five years ago, certain things that was hard to grasp, but then over time was permeating and then I'll reread now certain passages uh, from Shira Bin I used to read, read years ago and like, okay, boom, something changed. Now I don't not just intellectually get, but there's some sort of more embody, embodied recognition of just a deeper understanding and it goes within levels, you know, there's a deeper resonance with that. It's hard for me to put into words. Well, we can say it in this way. Well, normally when we talk of spirituality, we think of one great realization, right? Mm-hmm. Some, some massive experience and that's it. And many teachers and gurus have misguided people in this direction that I have had one. I know many gurus in today's day and age, I won't take names, who say, I had this experience and therefore I am realized. That is to be to say it in a parliamentary and polite way that is wrong. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, once we started in Shorobindu, we realized that there are about a few thousand thousand realizations or micro realizations. Mm-hmm. And because the nature of our, this comes from the, 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 the metaphysics and the uh, understanding of the self and the complexity of the structures and parts of the self. And at some point we can share some links and books and all that if, you know, on your podcast and all that later. Once we begin to understand that, we realize that in this complexity, at the level of the capacity that we have today, one micro-realization of the day itself is tremendous progress. Mm. And so it's some aspect of the being, some weakness, some vulnerability, some opening to a hostile uh, force or, 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 or a temptation or a, or, a, or a propensity, right? And because of this, this very complex structure of the mind and the vital and the physical substratum and their interlinkages between each other, there are various permutations and combinations of vulnerabilities or weakness or challenges and therefore a corresponding number of opportunities to heal them and approach wholeness, right? Mm. So as we begin to read and understand, we realize that every micro-realization does a job on which subsequent realizations or understandings or aha moments or insights, whatever way you want to call them, we can build on mm-hmm. and that is the ascension journey in itself it's not some one stroke of one day feeling good which yeah. can be had with a narcotic experience also right yeah. or I but that ain't going to do the job because that is some vital expansion or some wideness which is fine it's a it's a it's an elevating experience but that is not spirituality that is not the spiritual process we have to make this distinction very very clear mm. to dispel this confusion in our heads yeah that reminds me also in a previous episode laura and i had about spiritual realizations versus spiritual actualizations and people get hooked on just some big realization you know that comes and goes like getting hooked on peak experiences which you can have of certain even you certain 
uh, asana yogic practices, breathwork technique uh, practices, whatever, you can like get that experience, like get the pineal gland open up and get a DMT rush. And all of a sudden you think you're enlightened, but that's not, you know, an embodied actualization. And like you mentioned, it's, it happens more, but even more, even more and more subtle ways at this opening, right? In, in a sense, the, it's like a widening on, on all levels. Uh, I, 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 you mentioned it's an interesting word, embodied actualization. I like that term. I, I, I don't know how you guys have used it, uh, I mean, in what context. But I would say that one can say that something has happened not based on an aha moment, but an actual change of nature. Yeah. It's, it's, that's where the rubber hits the road. Change of nature. Have I changed at the level of being? And this itself is also not a zero-one switch. Uh, it takes time because uh, because ultimately even the sub, not just the mental and the vital physical body even the subconscious uh, which is basically between the between the living being and the inconscient as he calls it there are lots of things hidden there and uh, through dreams and through yoga even in sleep and there are various ways of doing these things each part of the being has to become awake and has to purify and has to open to the light. Other one part of the being does and the other part resists, then the change of nature ain't complete. If that is what you mean by actualization, then that is bang on target. Exactly. So that's what I meant, a change of nature, like an embodied actualized change of nature, you know, and not just, an, ex right. not just an experience, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Very, very true. Very so... Excellent. So um, we're at the end of the first hour. Um, so we covered the six, um, you know, the, is it a, what do you call it? The philosophical foundation or understanding, right? And then based on that, we can then explore what the work is to be done on the self, the, the integral yoga itself, maybe, you know, and Trio Bindo's work on that. And I also would definitely love to um, get into the second hour about what a lot of my readers are aware of, which I've referenced a lot, the occult hostile forces and the adverse forces. You know, there's even a difference from, uh, you know, I remember from our conversations, that would be interesting to lay that out. And also talk about the divine, and because I've been reading recently the chapter, the divine and the undivine from um, the, li uh, the life divine, which is very fascinating. It talks about how the divine works like, thank you, by the way, to giving me that hint <laughs> the other day. So, it's been very illuminating and very revealing. So I like to talk about that a bit, how, you know, it's a paradox, right? The divine, since everything is one is a divine, but there's the undivine and the hostile forces, what's going on. So, and how this actually plays out maybe in, in this day and age right now at the world stage manifested a little bit. So thank you, Nilish. And again, for uh, members of um, uh, the veil of reality.com, you guys have access to the second hour. If not, go to my website and you can sign up there again at veil of reality.com. And uh, we'll take a little break, Nilish, and we'll be right back. All right. See you soon. See you soon.